Well, good morning. We're uh, going through Matthew. We've now reached chapter 4. Uh, last week, Noah had finished off the baptism of Jesus Christ. We saw a pretty incredible picture. We saw the heavens open, the Spirit of God descending like a dove, shining upon Jesus. We then saw a voice from heaven with the Father uh, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's an incredible picture uh, to look at. As Noah said, it was like his inauguration. Um, it was uh, quite an event. And it's interesting because it's such a contrast to what we're about to see now. We're, we're coming from this amazing event to now being led by the Spirit into the wilderness, this barren, desolate place where there's no one there except the devil himself tempting Jesus for 40 days uh, and 40 nights. And so... As we look through these, uh, this passage in chapter 4, uh, we're going to be looking at the three temptations that were presented to Jesus by the devil, but I want to just take away from it just some of the characteristics that we see about who Jesus Christ is, uh, and just how we can learn from that, and then I also want to look at the characteristics of the devil and what his motives are, what, how he operates, and ultimately, I want to take application from it and just learn about when we look at Jesus Christ... He is ultimately our example for when we endure temptations, when we go through um, those in our lives. So I want to look at how he deals with temptations and take a little bit away from that in our own personal lives. So let's, uh, let's start reading in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4. It says in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights... Afterward, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only. You shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now, many of us have looked at this passage before. Uh, there's actually multiple encounters of this that we read in other Gospels. Um, but oftentimes, uh, we already know the picture. We know what's happening. We know ultimately that Jesus Christ has come here um, from heaven, come down as a babe. He's come to be living among men to then die on a cross, to then ultimately be ascended back to heaven. But ultimately on this path, he is on what we would call a downward trajectory. He's coming from heaven all the way down, down, down to the cross. And we know that because that's hindsight for us, because we can see that already from the rest of scripture. But as we look through this passage, it becomes clear and clear to me um, that the devil didn't quite know what Jesus was doing. I mean, he, he had read, he could have read in Scripture about a suffering Messiah. 
He could also read about a reigning king. And so, you know, he sees Jesus coming into this world, and he's not born in an ivory palace like he's probably assuming he would. He's not seeing him, you know, he's gone 30 years in relatively obscure, you know, obscure living. He hasn't really revealed himself as king. He hasn't made himself known to everyone. And so the devil must be thinking, you know, what gives? Why, why hasn't he shown himself? Why hasn't he uh, come out with it already? Uh, you know, and, and the, what the devil doesn't realize is that Jesus is on a downward trajectory, whereas the, the devil must have believed that he was on an upward trajectory. And so the devil wants him to re- essentially reveal himself, make himself known. Uh, and we'll see, that, we'll see that more as we go through this. But the first thing I just want to point out is that through it all, Jesus Christ is here on a mission to do the Father's will. He's on a mission to do not his own things, not to go to the left or the right, however he feels. He is solely here to do the Father's will. In fact, it makes it very clear in John 6, where Jesus says this very thing. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So that's Jesus, and that's his drive. He is here to do the Father's will. And uh, he will not stray to the left or to the right of that. Uh, But I want to just real quickly in verse 1 notice something interesting about it. It says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's it's something that didn't escape God's plan. This is according exactly to how he had wanted it. He was led by the Spirit. uh, And it's not something that... um, was, you know, oh no, that happened. That was clearly what God had intended. Uh, and it's also interesting, too, that oftentimes we call this the temptations of Jesus Christ. Uh, it could even be better said the testings of Christ. Um, but either way, it's basically uh, the thought process of most people is that he's gone to the wilderness, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the devil comes. But if you look at a parallel passage in Luke 4, it says that he was being tempted for 40 days and nights, meaning that these are just the three temptations that we see, and yet he has been tempted all 40 of these days. He has been, <laughs> at every point, being tested by the devil, and these are just the three that, we are, uh, that are written in the Bible for us to see. It's also important to note that the number 40 has been used constantly in the Bible as a, a symbol uh, for a period of testing, a period of trials. And here again, it's uh, no surprise that we see again the number 40 used here. So, uh, I think an important question to ask off the bat is, Jesus is being tested, he's being tempted, is it possible? Could Jesus have sinned? Is it, is it a possibility? Yeah, I see some head shaking, no. Yeah, it's clear, no, he could not have sinned. There's no possible way. And although the temptations were real, they were extremely real, we also realize something else about, about Jesus Christ, that he hates sin. To his very core, he hates it. He, it disgusts him. He wants nothing to do with it. Um, so the second thing we'll learn about Jesus is that he is sinless. And he hates sin with just an absolute, uh, to the very core of him. He hates it. I, uh, I was thinking of an illustration. I'm sorry if this offends some people. But this is the best illustration I can think of. Uh, I have tried many times this food. But I, I just I cannot stand Brussels sprouts. I have tried so many different forms of it. I've tried some people, uh, you know, baking it. Some people have boiled it. Some people have uh, steamed it. Some people have pan fried it. However you want to do it, I just gag at the thought of eating Brussels sprouts. 
I, I, it's one of those things where you basically you put it in your mouth and you don't even chew it because when you chew it, it opens the flavor more. And so you just put it in your mouth and then swallow it down with some water and hope for the best. And uh, I, I just, I hate Brussels sprouts and I, I cannot stand the thought of it. And you might say, well, David, I, I know what I'll do. I'll tempt you with a plate of Brussels sprouts. Doesn't that look good? And I'll go, no, it's, it's disgusting. And you say, well, maybe I'll bring you more then. Maybe then you'll be uh, tempted. And you could bring me a truckload of Brussels sprouts, and I will refuse it every time because there's no appeal to me. And um, that's the same way it is with Jesus, if, if you'll use that, that poor illustration, that he hates it. To his very core, it disgusts him. That's the way he is with sin. You can keep bringing him, presenting him with different things. You can show him you know, a larger portion of this and that. He's going to refuse it because he hates sin. My illustration is poor because maybe one day I'll meet somebody who can make it the way I maybe acquire a taste for it. And so maybe it's possible, unlikely, but it's possible I could meet one day somebody who makes Brussels sprouts the way I like it. Uh, but with Jesus, he cannot change. He is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He always will hate sin. He will always say no to sin. In fact, uh, 2 Corinthians tells us that Jesus knew no sin. First Peter tells us that he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And in 1 John, we read, in him there is no sin. Jesus is sinless. And that although these temptations were real, we have to keep in mind this is not a, a testing for him to pass or fail. It's really a, a testing to reveal his sinless perfection. So let's just keep that in mind as we're going through this. Um, so we read about verse 2. It says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Just take a second to think about it. Afterward, he was hungry. This is the God of the universe. This is the creator of everything there is in this earth. The food, the grain, the water, the, uh, the plants, everything that produces from the ground, God has made. And yet it says he was hungry. He didn't have nourishment for his own body, even though he was all the creator of everything. I mean, what's the, what's the longest you guys have, have gone without eating? I mean, 12 hours? 24 hours. I think most of us haven't gone much more than that. Uh, I think most of us, when we think about um, fasting, we think about going in for labs the next morning where we have to stop at 8 o'clock because 12 hours you have to wait. So we go to the hometown buffet the night before and we gouge on, uh, on trying to save up enough stock for the next morning. And when we finally reach the 12 hours, we then eat as if we hadn't eaten in years. Uh, that's most people's idea of fasting. <laughs> but think about it. 40 days. The longest I've ever had a patient wait for food was three days. And they were calling out constantly, every hour, nurse, please bring me something, anything, I'll take just water even, please. But they couldn't have anything. They couldn't even have anything. But now think about it. This is Jesus, 40 days. His body is starving. He is hungry. He needs nourishment. And notice what verse 3 says. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Notice how Satan loves to come and tempt when we are the most vulnerable, when we are at our lowest point, if you will. Satan has been working on mankind since the beginning of creation. You see it with Adam and Eve in the garden. You see uh, he tempted Adam and Eve <clears throat> with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where, Jesus, or where God clearly says, 
you know, do not take of this tree for the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what's Satan's response? You know, you shall surely not die if you take of that. Commanding mankind, uh, basically deceiving them or lying to them and telling them that this is okay, that somehow this is right. Uh, he knows the ins and outs of mankind. He knows how to get them to sin. He knows how to deceive them. That's who the devil is. I mean, in fact, John 8 makes it very clear that he is the father of lies. It tells us that he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. This is what the devil is. That's the very core of who he is. He loves to find mankind when they are the most vulnerable, and he loves to attack them with his lies. And so the devil, he's dealt with man before. He knows the ins and outs of them. He knows, it's just, just give me a little time and I'll work. I, I, know what, I know where their weaknesses are. First John tells us um, that this world offers man three, mankind three kinds of temptations, if you will. And Satan loves to use these three constantly. And we'll see all three of these used in his temptations with Jesus. It says in 1 John 2, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. You see, at this point, Satan knows that these are three things that he has used very well uh, with all mankind. And he's very, very uh, uh, studied upon these things on how to use them effectively for his purposes. And now he sees that God the Father has not yet given food to Jesus. And so Satan appeals to the lust of the flesh and tries to get Jesus to sin. The devil shows, uh, sees the need that he has. And so he tells him, make yourself some bread. And uh, before we, we really get into the, the details of this, I just want to step aside and just uh, remind ourselves the purpose of why we're reading this. It's not just for the sake of a story, not just for the sake of realizing that Jesus is sinless. It's very important, but it's also to remind ourselves that this is our example to follow after. This is the one that we need to look to as our perfect example for how we should endure temptations, for what we should do in response to temptations. Uh, we read about this uh, in the Breaking of Bread in Hebrews 4, 15, where it talks about Jesus saying, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is our perfect example because he's been tested by the devil these past 40 days, and then we see three more temptations after that, showing that he is perfect in every way, able to resist the temptations that came before him. Uh, and, and it's just uh, a great example for us to look to whenever we feel uh, tempted by, by sin. Um, so, Satan also repeatedly uses in this passage the phrase, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. He constantly brings up that phrase. Do you think that Satan didn't know that this was the Son of God? Do you think he had to ask because he, didn't, he wasn't aware, he wasn't sure? He knew very well who this was. In fact, uh, there's numerous encounters in Mark and other, in the rest of the Gospels where even the demons are plainly stating that this is the Son of God. In fact, we read about it in Mark 1. It says, Now there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, 
And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then again in Mark 3, it says, And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. If the, the demons, the fallen angels underneath Satan, under his rule, can clearly acknowledge that this is the Son of God, then the devil is very well aware of who this is. He knows. And um, in fact, um, this doesn't just come up you know, while he's still on this earth. It, it happens even while he's on the cross. The same phrase, if you are the Son of God, it comes up again saying uh, in Matthew 27, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Satan is here mocking, uh, mocking Jesus, thinking that he's, he's won. This is his victory song, uh, not realizing that in the very act of dying, Jesus was sealing the fate of Satan, and death would no longer have the sting that it once had on mankind. And it's interesting that this phrase, if you are the Son of God, keeps coming up. Um, but it's interesting, too, because, you know, the devil, he's never dealt with anything like this before. This is, he knows this is God. He knows that this is the Son of God, came down to this earth, but he's also man. He also knows that this has never been seen before. I mean, when has the Son of God ever become man? This, was, this never happened. It's incredible. And so, although he knows that this is God, he also sees that this is a man. And so, he appeals to him as if he would a man. He appeals to him as if, you know, he would any other person. But he doesn't yet realize, or at least not yet, that Jesus cannot sin. He is perfect. No matter what's going to be thrown at him, he will refuse it. And again, this testing reveals or showcases the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ. So, the first temptation, like I said, it's a, it commands Jesus to turn these stones to bread. A temptation that would be described as the lust of the flesh. And he, basically he's saying, you know, look, you've got to eat, you're starving, make yourself some food. Or it could be better said, since you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And what's the problem with that? Why, why would it be wrong for Jesus to do that? It, he, he has a physical need. Why can't he just simply do that? The first thing, well, the first reason is that the devil himself is the one suggesting it. So obviously the Lord's not going to obey any command that Satan gives him. But more importantly, it's, it's not his father's will. His father has not given him a command to turn these stones to bread. And uh, Jesus, like I said, is here to do the Father's will. He's not going to do anything that's contrary to what his Father has told him to do. And uh, which really just points out another characteristic of Satan. It's that whatever God has intended, Satan is in direct opposition to it. Whatever God is doing, he's trying to thwart it. And no matter which way it is, he's in opposition to God. And in our lives, we have... Um, a corresponding temptation, like I said, the lust of the flesh. It's just a temptation for us to gratify our flesh, whether it be sexual desires, whether it be gluttony, whether it be alcohol consumption, whether it be taking drugs, whether it be any kind of form of the, the fleshly deeds. No matter what it is, it would be categorized as the lust of the flesh. It's a temptation for us to seek out the comforts or the pleasures in our own flesh rather than be obedient to God's will. Uh, it's interesting because all of these same temptations were showcased, and Satan used all of them when he tempted Eve in the garden. Remember, when she looked at that fruit, 
She saw that it was good for food. And she was tempted by the lust of the flesh. And she fell into that sin when she disobeyed God. And um, it's interesting because this is the same temptation that Jesus faced. And it's the same one we faced. And yet Jesus was able to go through this temptation without sinning. It's also important, I should also point out too now that uh, oftentimes people say, you know, the devil made me do it, or, you know, or God, uh, God led me into that temptation, or, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't help it, you know, I just, you know, God shouldn't have given me that temptation, it was too much for me, he, he shouldn't have been tempting me. But James makes it very clear about, about uh, God's stance on this. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. When we're tempted, we're tempted by this world, our flesh, even the devil, but not by God. God cannot tempt anyone to sin. And, uh, and it's interesting too, and here it says he does not, uh, cannot be tempted by evil. Meaning that you can throw whatever you want at him, but it's just going to repel off of him. He's not going to be tempted by it. He doesn't have to think about it. Now wait a minute, you know, maybe I shouldn't do that. No, it's, he hates sin to the core. He cannot be tempted by evil. So we'll see. Uh, so that was his first temptation by the devil. We'll look at verse 4 where it shows the response of Jesus. It says in verse 4, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You notice what he did there. He, he responds to the devil using the word of God. This is actually a, a section from Deuteronomy. Uh, where Jesus takes from. And, and basically, he's saying, you know what? Physical nourishment is not the most important thing to me. The Word of God, doing His will is all that I need. I don't need, to, I don't need any physical nourishment because I know that ultimately I have enough for right now. God has sustained me enough with just His Word alone. And He would rather do His own will, or rather do uh, the Father's will than do His own will. To Jesus, doing anything other than the Father's will is like Brussels sprouts to him. He just he hates the thought of it. Just the idea of it disgusts him. He doesn't even want to do anything contrary to his Father's will. And we can actually take away uh, quite a bit from that because when we're faced with temptation, it kind of shows us an application for our own lives, that we can use the Word of God um, in dealing with the temptations. Notice that this is something that Jesus meditated on. He must have spent a lot of time dwelling on these words, reflecting on them, thinking about them, memorizing, studying them. And when we're tempted, we can use the word of God to remind ourselves of the truth. And it's not, I, I want to point out, it's not just, you know, you know, oh, there you go. You just memorize a verse. There you go. And then, you know, all the temptations will go away. It's important to point out uh, what it says in Psalms 1, uh, 119, where it says, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's not just simply memorizing a chant or a memory verse like it's, you know, some, some song or something. It's the very The reason why it worked for Jesus was because that's his very heart. That's how he felt. He genuinely hated the things that God hated and loved the things that God loved because he is God, uh, but also because that's his genuine heart. And when we study the word of God, when we allow it to be ingrained and we meditate on it and allow it to be the same way that aligns with how God feels about sin and how he hates things and how he loves things, then it becomes effective because the verse is just a reflection of our heart. It's a reflection of how we genuinely feel about that. 
And so when we're studying the, the Word of God and we allow ourselves to become in tune with His will, we'll have a lot of victory over sin when we use the Word of God because that's what we genuinely felt. That's what we genuinely uh, reflected on. That's what we've been thinking about. We've been meditating on it. And we realize that's the same thing with the Lord Jesus. He's been meditating on these things. He genuinely felt these things. So that's the first temptation that he dealt with. The second temptation we read about in verses 5 and 6, it says, Then the devil took him up onto, or into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. This next temptation, Satan's basically saying, I'm going to take you up this high area, throw yourself down, make a spectacle of yourself, make a display of yourself, make yourself known. He's trying to give him an opportunity, show the world that you're the Messiah. Basically, he's, he's reminded, Satan's reminded that, you know, he's been so incognito, if we will, he's been so quiet, he hasn't shown himself, hasn't showcased himself yet. Show yourself now, let the whole world see it in the spectacle, let them all uh, glory in what you're able to do. These are miraculous accomplishments. And it's a temptation um, for the pride of life. A temptation that appeals to a, a desire for self-glory, self-display, exalting oneself. A temptation for Jesus to receive glory and praise and recognition from men outside of the Father's will, outside of the Father's timing. Eve, interestingly enough, also found herself tempted with the same temptation in the Garden of Eden where she was, saw a tree that was desirable to make one wise. And Satan told her that if she took of it, she would be like God, knowing good and evil. She desired this pride of life. She wanted to know, have this knowledge. It was uh, you know, something that she, she wanted. And she took of it, and we know that she sinned. And the devil's ways really have not changed. It's the same as it was in the Garden of Eden, same way it's today, same way it was with Jesus back in this temptation. We know this is the exact same sin that ultimately got Lucifer, as he now is known as Satan, kicked out of heaven. He had a desire to elevate himself. He wanted to promote himself. He wanted to make himself known. Um, and this, this temptation to elevate yourself, to promote yourself, is in complete opposition to what Jesus talks about as his disciples, as what a, 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 the true disciple would look like in Luke 9. It says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him not exalt himself, but deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In the pride of life, our own, this own arrogance we have to promote ourselves, to make ourselves known, to receive glory for our actions, for our deeds, is not from the Father. It's from the world. And if we want to continue promoting ourselves and build up this, uh, this persona of who we are, will greatly limit our effectiveness for the kingdom of God. And so we need to look at our, our example, who is Jesus, and realize he was not here for his own glory. He was not here seeking to do his own will. He was here to do the Father's will. And it's a reminder for us to avoid this temptation for self-glory, self-exaltation. And instead, we should seek out the Father's will in everything that we do. Notice again, too, that, uh, like I said, Satan's not doubting uh, that this is the Son of God. He knows clearly that this is the Son of God. In fact, 
He's actually quoting from a messianic psalm in Psalm 91, where it says, you know, he shall give angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You know, the devil, he's very well versed in the Bible. He, he probably knows uh, more of the Bible's ins and outs than we do. He studies it constantly. But believe me, when he quotes the Bible, he's quoting it out of context. He's taking it to twist it to mean it however he wants it to mean. Uh, in, the, in the passage, Jesus it talks about the Father's protection over Jesus. And he doesn't intend it to mean that he can just be throwing himself off the pinnacles however he wants to, and that he'll just have rescue no matter where he goes. It's as long as he's doing the Father's will. Uh, and the Father hasn't told him to jump off of a pinnacle. He hasn't told him to... to, to you know, display himself in that way. And so Jesus refuses that temptation. Um, and he wants nothing to do with the suggestion that Satan gives him. We read about uh, Jesus' response in verse 7, where he says, It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You know, God the Father had told him, uh, had not told him to do this. And so, clearly, like I said, he's not going to do anything other than what's contrary or what, other than what's uh, according to his perfect timing. The third temptation that we read about, and probably the most interesting one to me, is found in verses 8 and 9. Uh, it says, Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Wow. This one... Uh, you know, at this point, Satan, he's been going 40 days with Jesus in the wilderness, just trying to get him to sin in every different way, every different fashion. And he's essentially running out of gas. He's essentially saying, you know what? <laughs> you know, I've tried every different angle. I have to up my game somehow. I have to try and just offer him something that he couldn't refuse or hopefully he wouldn't refuse. And so Satan takes him up on this high mountain shows them all the kingdoms of the world, all their glory, everything that they contain, and says, if you just fall down and worship me, I'll give it to you all. I mean, that's, that's pretty desperate. I mean, the devil, when's the last time he's ever had to offer someone the entire world? He's never, he's never done it before. He's never had to go that far with people. People, I mean, if you look at people today and what they're content with, he offers them just a sliver of this world and they're happy. He could give them just a momentary satisfaction. Maybe they want just a certain amount of wealth and they'll be happy and quiet and they won't uh, care to involve their lives with anything godly. Or maybe he'll give them uh, you know, a position of power. Maybe it's a mayor of a city. Or maybe just a principal over a school. Or maybe it's even the governor of the state. And that's enough to keep them satisfied. Or maybe he'll give them some kind of high or buzz off of drugs or alcohol. And that's enough to keep them satisfied. Or maybe he'll give them a certain amount of fame in life. And that's content with them. People are so willing to just uh, take even just a fraction of this world and be happy with it without God. Or at least they think they'll be happy without God. It doesn't take much. Satan has never had to go that far with mankind to offer them anything more than just a sliver of this world. And yet with Jesus, he offers them everything. He says, take it all. I'll give it to you everything if you just bow down and worship me. Wow, that's pretty pathetic. And that's what he wants. He wants that worship. He's craved that worship from the very beginning. We read about his intentions um, in, in Isaiah, and we'll get to that in a second, but that's his, his desire. He wants to be worshipped. 
It's so pathetic. And actually, what's interesting too is that this is a legitimate offer. This is a, uh, Satan is described as the god of this age. He is the, the ruler of this world. The one who the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He has dominion over this world, and God is sovereign over the devil. But, again, this is, at this current time, it's under his control. It's under his ruling. However, he knows that Jesus will one day come back and take up uh, the kingdoms, and it will become his again. And Satan knows that this process is going to happen at one point, and so he's offering him a chance to expedite this process. He's saying, here, I'll tell you what, I'll give it to you all back. Just bow down and worship me. A temptation that we would uh, describe in 1 John as a, a lust of the eyes, a desire to possess anything that's appealing to the eyes, a desire to have what looks visually uh, appealing. Eve was also tempted in the garden with this one when she saw a fruit that was pleasant to the eyes. God told her, do not take of that fruit. She saw it. It looked good to her. She ate of it. She sinned against God. She thought, boy, that looks good. And yet, it led to ultimately her sinning against God. And uh, like I said, it doesn't take much for the devil uh, today to tempt people. It could be lusting after someone else's money, their possessions, their status in life, their husband or their wife. It could be anything. Anything that someone can look after with their eyes and lust after it. But remind ourselves very clearly what it says in 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Keep that in the back of your mind, that this world is temporal, this world is passing away. Don't love the things that Satan offers you with uh, temporary fleeting lust that he offers. Don't focus your things on other people's things, on anything that's ungodly. It's worthless, and everything in this world will fade away. Focus on doing the will of God, because that's what's going to count for eternity. And now we see um, in verse 10 how Jesus responds to this temptation. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. This is the third and final time that Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. Clearly, he has again been meditating on this word. He's been dwelling on these, these, uh, these words of God. And it's easy for him to refute this temptation because that's his very heart. He felt that way. He genuinely felt that way about, about it, that there was no one else to be worshipped. There was no one else to be uh, bowed down to except the Lord, your God. And for him to fall for this temptation would be not only just violating his father's perfect will in, in everything, but also he knows that to, to bow down to Satan would be giving him a higher position than God or even making him equal with God. And that is, he is so far from what God would do. In fact, when I told you uh, earlier, that's exactly what Satan wanted. He wanted worship from the beginning. This is the very heart of Satan. If we read about it in Isaiah, this is him uh, in his heart, really. This is what he thought. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. 
I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the Most High. That's Satan's heart. He wants that worship. He wants to be like God. In fact, he'll take even more than that. If he's willing to bow down to him, he'll take even more worship than that. The, devil, the devils craved it from the beginning. And Jesus said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Jesus could not lust after the passing things of this world. He could not be tempted by the things that Satan offered him. There was no appeal to him. There was no desire for it. He hates it to his core. In fact, Jesus even says to him, in, or even says to us in Mark 8, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And sadly today, like I was saying earlier, there's people who will sell their soul for so much less than the whole world. The devil's never given that much to anybody. People are so happy trading their souls for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, whatever Satan gives them, they're willing to make that exchange. Are you, have you traded the things of this world, the things that are passing away, for God's offer? God's eternal offer for an abundant life, for a joyful life, for a happy life, for a life of eternal blessings, for a life of true, lasting satisfaction? Have you traded that for a sliver, for a fraction of this world that Satan's offered you? Don't make that trade. <laughs> for what would it profit a man if he gained the entire world, not just a sliver, the entire world, and lost his own soul? Finally, we see in verse 11, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. And notice it says that the devil left him. You know, the devil had been trying so much for these 40 days in every different angle to try and get him to sin. And he's realizing, you know, I've tried everything. There is no way that Jesus is going to sin. There's no way he's going to be tempted in any way. And he's realized he's just wasted his time. He's realized that he's not going to disobey his father. He's not going to go against his will. And so he leaves. The devil is a finite being, and he wants to go where he can be most effective. And he realizes after the 40 days, he's getting nowhere. He has gone nowhere, and so he leaves. And there's a real application for our own lives found in James chapter 4. It says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Jesus had this whole time been submitting to the Father's will. He had been in line with what God wanted him to do, and he had been resisting every temptation that came his way. And ultimately, we see that. The devil fled from him. He left. He basically, he hates it when people put up a fight. He hates it when people resist him. He hates when people say no to him. But God's word gives us this promise that if we continue pursuing God's will, continue resisting the devil and his temptations that he offers us, the devil will flee from us. And notice, too, that it says the angels came and ministered to him. The Bible doesn't clearly tell us what or how they ministered to him, but we can assume from this passage that he's been in this desert for 40 days. He's without food. He's hungry. And we can assume that um, the angels would have provided physical nourishment to his body in accordance with the Father's will. Notice that's important because earlier it was offered him through Satan's temptations, saying, do it now, but that wasn't at the timing that God had perfectly planned. Now it is God's perfect timing for him. 
And so Jesus now is being ministered to by the angels in God's perfect timing. And we see from these temptations with the devil that everyone will be tempted with some form, but the devil, again, will be powerless against all those who resist him with the word of God and hold fast to God's will. So through this whole through this whole passage, we've kind of been looking at Adam and Eve. We looked at, in the garden, how they've sinned and they were tempted. We think about our own lives and we think about how we've been tempted with those very things. We think about how we've failed. But then we look at Jesus and how he has gone through all these forms of temptations, yet without sin. That's the incredible distinguishing factor between us and him, that he is the only one who was sinless. He was the only one who was able to go through all those things and be the perfect one. No one else could have gone through that. No one else could have endured those kind of temptations and not have sinned. And yet that's why he is the only one who could have been our savior. He is the only one who could have been our perfect substitute. And on that cross, he died for us because he was the only sinless, perfect one for us. And while Satan thought that he was on this upward trajectory towards fame, towards glory, towards power, he was offering him all those things. Jesus, as we know, was on a downward trajectory to die for your sins and for mine. And uh, praise God he was on that path, that he didn't look at his own desire. He, couldn't, he didn't look at desires that Satan was offering him. He didn't want to do his own will. He wanted to do the Father's will. And that will was to die for you and I. And like I said, as believers, we are going to be faced with these same temptations. We'll be faced with these same offers that the devil will give up to us. And I wanted to just briefly, in closing, look at just some practical ways in which we um, can resist the devil and resist the temptations that he throws our way. Some of these we've already included, but the first one is just reading the Word of God, spending time in it, meditating on it, memorizing it, hiding his Word in our hearts so that when the temptations come our way, it will just be repelling off of us because we're so ingrained and in tune with how God feels about sin we're so in tune with what he hates and what he loves that is just, we can quote verses back as just a reflection of our heart for how God feels about that. Also, the second thing is that we when we resist the devil, it's a promise that he will flee from us. So if we continually say no, continually say, I will not disobey God's will, I will not disobey, we will know that ultimately Satan will flee from us. He doesn't want to waste his time with people who are constantly refusing his temptations, constantly just wanting to do the Father's will. The third thing I thought of um, doesn't come from this passage, but it's a principle in the Bible um, that's seen in the life of David the king. And it's a factor about not being idle with our time here on this earth. David could have gone out with his soldiers, could have gone to war or battle with them, but instead he stayed behind. And we know that that led to a lot of immoral behavior, it led to him murdering, ultimately, uh, Uriah the Hittite. And uh, all of that could have been prevented had he not been so idle with his time. And the devil, it's been said before, that idle hands are the devil's workshop. But the idea being that he loves it when we have nothing to do, when we have nothing planned, when we're not actively involved in doing God's service or, or actively involved in just anything in our lives. He'll use those times. That's when we're most vulnerable. And that's when he can use those times to really tempt us to do things that are not according to God's will. So don't be idle with your time. Stay active for the Lord. Um, the fourth thing I thought of was just praying. Jesus constantly throughout this time in the wilderness 
it's inevitable that he was praying to the Father. He must have been spending quite a bit of time asking the Father for help, asking him for um, provisions each day to sustain him. Pray to God and ask him for strength because we cannot resist these things on our own. If you think that you're strong, if you think that you're able to do it on your own, believe me, you won't be able to. But through God's power, through his strength, he can help you resist the devil. He can help you resist the temptations that come your way. And so that you can have the strength to say no to sin and to just do the Father's will instead. And finally, this one is just an encouragement to me and to everyone, I hope. God is not going to give you more than you can handle in a temptation. We're told this clearly in 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you, such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way, or make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. God knows what we can handle. He knows how much we can endure. And he is not going to give us anything in our way that we cannot endure. Think about Job. God only allowed as much as he could endure in that temptation that he endured there. And in our lives, whenever there is a, uh, a sin it hasn't already, or that whenever there's temptation, God is not going to give us more than we can handle. And it's clear here that he will give us a way of escape. If you think about every time we're tempted, there's always an out for us. There's always a way that we could have said no. A way we could have said, no, I, I don't want to do that. I know that's not appealing. And so just remind ourselves that God is not going to give you more than you can bear. And pray each time that he would help you find that way of escape. To find that out so that we can resist the devil in the future. Let's just pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we're just so thankful we can look at your your word, and Lord, we know that through this temptations that we see, we realize, Lord, that you are sinless. You are perfect. You are the only one who could have died for our sins. And Lord, we're so thankful for that. We're so thankful that, Lord, you were not only uh, the only perfect substitute, but you were willing to die for us. And Lord, we're thankful that you were on that downward trajectory to the cross to bear my sins and the sins of this whole world. Lord, we're also thankful that we can take a lot of practical truths from this passage and apply it to our own lives, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't look at the passing things of this world and what the Satan offers us, but rather we would look to do your will and be obedient to you, Lord. I pray you just help us this week um, to be more like you and to resist the temptations that come our way. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.